book of uh, Psalms, Psalm 119. We've been making our way through this long psalm uh, together. It is broken up into or excuse me, into 22 different eight-verse stanzas corresponding to the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Today we are about two-thirds the way through this psalm. Uh, we are in the 15th of the 22 sections. And it's verses 113 through 120. This entire long psalm rejoicing in the goodness of the law of God and how it ought to be for the Christian that we are those who delight in God's holy law. Let's hear now from God's uh, holy word. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield, I hope, in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live, and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe, and have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn all all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross, therefore I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. This ends this reading in God's word. Let's now look again to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Lord, this is your holy word, and we pray that we would learn from it to our soul's profit this evening. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Uh, One of the constant realities in the life of any believer in Jesus Christ is the presence of indwelling sin. When we are united to Jesus Christ, the dominion of sin is broken in our lives. Sin no longer reigns over us. We are enabled by God's grace to do those things which are pleasing to him. Yet, nonetheless, until we enter glory, there is still the presence of sin in our lives. And so the believer is called to a constant warfare or conflict against indwelling sin. Uh, Galatians 5, for example, speaks of this uh, conflict. What it says in verse uh, 17, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And similarly, Romans 7 describes this conflict in the life of the true believer. Romans 7 and verse 21 So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We see there that reality that the... the, true child of God, loves the law of God in the way that Psalm 119 speaks of a love for God's law. 
And yet, nonetheless, we find in each one of our souls the continued presence of sin that needs to be rooted out and, uh, and we need to wage constant warfare against it. You see, the sin of the believer is still just that. It is sin. It isn't uh, when a person becomes a Christian, their sin doesn't, isn't kind of reclassified to something that's less significant. It is still dirty, stinking, rotten, hell-deserving sin. And the Christian ought to desire passionately to be rid of it. The Christian needs to fight against it and to seek to cut it off. And I think that's what we find here in Psalm 119 and verse 113 to 120. It is this psalmist delighting in the law of God and yet desiring passionately to fight this warfare against indwelling sin. And in this psalm, we can see three different principles for this fight against indwelling sin. Let me just list those three. These will be the three points of today's sermon. First of all, we're going to see that we must act severely toward our sin. Secondly, that we must depend wholeheartedly on our God. And thirdly, we must remember constantly the coming judgment. Uh, Those three things in our fight against indwelling sin, we must act severely toward our sin. We must depend wholeheartedly on our God. We must remember constantly the coming judgment. Well, the first element in waging war against indwelling sin is that we must act severely toward our sin. And you'll see that in both verse 113 and in verse 115. And there we're told two key things about his attitude. The first is found in verse 113. It says, I hate the double-minded. Now that word double-minded is the same word that is translated uh, two opinions in 1 Kings 18 and verse 21. When Elijah is challenging the people of Israel on Mount Carmel, how long will you waver between, and here it is, between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, uh, follow him. Uh, What Elijah was saying was you can't serve both God and Baal. It sounds reminiscent of what Jesus said, right? That you can't serve uh, both uh, God and uh, mammon. The idea being that you can't be a person of two minds. That a two-minded person is that who is a hypocrite who is professing commitment to God on the one hand while inwardly having the mind of an unconverted man or woman. And the psalmist says, I love your law. And so what he hates then is all hypocritical, mere formal attachment to that law. He hates double-mindedness. He hates it as he sees it in others. But I think his focus in this psalm is he hates it when he sees it in himself. He's on guard against double-mindedness in himself. I simply ask you, do you have that same determined opposition to every sin that you find within your own minds? Do you have a determined intention 
to be rid of it, a hatred of it, all of your pride, all of your conceit and arrogance, all of your bitterness, all of your anger, all of your lust, all of your frivolity, all of your selfish ambition, all of your deceit, all of your unsubmissiveness, all of your hatefulness, all of your spitefulness, all of your idolatry, that wherever any of these sins you find rising up within your own mind, you're on guard against it, and you say, I hate that sin because it is contrary to the law of, our, of my God. Are you aware of how sin is rising up within you? Charles Bridges uh, puts it this way. He says that much of our successful warfare, and in this he's referring to our warfare against indwelling sin, much of our successful warfare depends upon an accurate and well-digested acquaintance with our own hearts, upon a discovery of the bias of the mind in our unoccupied moments and of the peculiar seasons and circumstances that give most power to to temptation. Are you aware, are you watchful against that sin, the double-mindedness that easily comes into your heart? And if you would live a holy life like the psalmist, you must resolve to cut off that sin, to hate it, in order to practice righteousness. It needs to be a kind of firm and fixed resolution in your heart. There needs to be an intentionality about it, a desire to be rid of that indwelling sin. Is that true in your own heart and in your own life? He hates the double-minded. But uh, the second, still under this first main point, uh, the second specific way in which he... Uh, expresses this kind of uh, hatred uh, for sin is that he departs from evildoers. You see that in verse 115. He says, Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. He desires to depart from all those who would lead him into paths of ungodliness. Do you know it is a lot harder to honor the Lord when we are around others that likewise do not want to honor him? Um, it's the reality. It's often it's called peer pressure, right? That's what we call it. But it's true. It's difficult. You know, when people are talking in a certain manner that's about things that aren't pleasing to God, maybe uh, just the language, the topics of conversations or things that are not pleasing to him. It's really hard to turn a conversation to things which are godly when you're around people that have no interest in the Lord. It's really hard to do that. Okay, And what is more, we, because we are weak, we easily conform to the standard and to the lifestyle of the people that we spend time with. Around. Remember what the New Testament says, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 14 through 16, in words that are often rightly applied to marriage, 
but ought to be applied to really any of any close friendship that we would uh, that we would have. When it tells us there, Second Corinthians six, beginning in verse fourteen, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God uh, with idols? Do you see the reasoning there? And it's very simple that if Jesus Christ is the most important thing in your life, then you will not have true, genuine, deep fellowship with somebody that cares not for the Lord Jesus. You can't have it. And so that's why as Christians we ought not to marry, uh, intentionally marry those who are unbelievers. Similarly, in the friendships that we make, we ought intentionally to cultivate friendships with those who are like-minded in uh, godliness. We ought to seek godly friends. Now, this doesn't mean that we have a kind of monastic, uh, as it were, isolation from the world uh, around us, an unwillingness to even associate with those who are, uh, who are non-Christians. Uh, no, that's certainly not, uh, not the case. Uh, uh, we are, as we have, uh, uh, you know, uh, non-Christians that we work with, maybe non-Christians that we've had associations with, maybe that we had deep friendships with at one point. Maybe you're married to an unbeliever, okay, you are certainly called to communicate and to be around that person and to have a connection to them. But the point is this, that our deepest friendships, and we need to be intentional at cultivating such, need to be with other believers. We need to be intentional about cultivating friendships with those who are uh, godly. Are they the people that you enjoy the most? Are they the people that you are seeking to spend time with? The most are they the ones who are you you are seeking to share your heart with? It's intent, uh, that's so important uh, that we be those, as the psalmist says, who depart from evildoers. Depart from me, you evildoers, so that I may keep the commandments of my God. Notice how strong that language is. Depart. Don't be half-hearted in your break with the ungodly, okay? If you're dating, for example, a, a, if, you, if you're single and you're dating a non-Christian guy or girl, you don't need to be in that relationship. Cut it off. Cut it off. Uh, but, uh, and similarly, we need to be intentional about our friendships with other, uh, with other Christians, and so that's what we see here. We need to act severely toward our sin and hating the double-mindedness that we see in our own hearts and departing from those who are evildoers. But secondly now, secondly, we must depend wholeheartedly on our God. This is the second element to our fight against indwelling sin. We must depend wholeheartedly upon our God. We see this in verses 114, 116, and 117. And you'll notice a similar theme in each of these. He is speaking in prayer to the Lord. You are my hiding place and my shield, I hope, in your word. 
Or verse 116, uphold me according to your promise that I may live and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Or again, 117, he prays to the Lord, hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. Uh, uh, David realizes that if he is going to be one who keeps God's commandments, the Lord must first of all be the one who keeps him. When in the storm of temptation, we need to seek out the shelter of God. When faced with the devil's arrows, we are to make the Lord our shield. And this teaches us what is really one of the most important elements in our fight against sin, and that is the element of faith. That faith which attaches us to Jesus Christ by which we believe and trust in His all-redeeming work is absolutely vital. You cannot fight against sin without looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not merely a matter of being determined to do better in your own power. but Rather, you need a constant and continual dependence upon the Lord. Christ is the only real hiding place for the Christian. We go to Him covered in His righteousness, we are shielded from sin's guilt. Empowered by Christ's resurrection life, we are enabled to say no to sin and to live unto God. Filled with His Holy Spirit, we are enabled to put into practice His commandments. Do you see, it's only through that vital attachment, faith attachment to Jesus Christ, that we will be enabled uh, to fight against uh, sin. And So that's why he asked the Lord to uphold him. You know, uphold me, he says. Verse 116 says, uphold me according to your promise. What a wonderful phrase that is. Uphold me according to your promise that I might live. In other words, he's saying, Lord, you have promised to be my Savior. You can't save me unless you uphold me. In in other words, uh, uh, um, C.H. Spurgeon puts it this way. He says this, that he who has given us eternal life, namely God, has in that gift secured to us all that is essential thereto. And as gracious upholding is one of the necessary things, uh, we may be sure that we shall have it. In other words, the Lord has promised to save us. He has promised to uphold us all along life's journey. And so call out to him, Lord, I need you. Lord, uphold me. Enable me to say no to sin. When you feel your own weakness and you feel temptation getting the better of you and you don't know if you're going to give in to the sin, cry out to God, Lord, uphold me according to your promise. Keep my weak soul under your sovereign care. Jesus, pray for me. Holy Spirit, convict me. Enlighten my mind. Guide me in the way that I should go. We need the Lord. Remember Peter. I think that was so much the cause of his own downfall. Remember, Lord, if everyone else leaves you, I never will. I'll never depart from you. And then on that night of Jesus' arrest, Three different times at the mere suggestion of a servant girl. Peter denies even knowing. One time with a curse. Even knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He was weak in himself. Even Peter, the mighty apostle, was weak in himself. And the only thing that preserved Peter was what? It was the prayers of the Lord Jesus. He would tell Peter that I've, I've prayed for you. Peter, I've prayed for you. Okay, and when you return, strengthen your brethren. And it was only by the Lord's mercy and the Lord's grace that Peter was ever returned. Well, friends, we need to recognize that we are no stronger than Peter. It's not that Peter was an especially weak Christian. Peter himself was in many ways mighty in the faith. But he was a little presumptuous. And friends, every bit as much as Peter needed the Lord's sustaining hand, you need it every single moment of your life. You need the Lord's grace every bit as much now as the day when you were first converted. It takes every bit as much of the Lord's power to keep you in the faith as it did to bring you into His kingdom. Do you recognize that dependence on the Lord? Do you you cry out to Him in that way? Lord, help me today. Help me to say no to the evil one. Help me to resist the evil one's attacks. Gracious God, help me to lean upon your promises. I can't do this by my own strength. The Lord, assure me of the truth of your word. Oh, Holy Spirit of God, enable me to say no to all unrighteousness. Lord, enable me to delight in your holy law, to see no attraction in this world, and to see all beauty in Jesus Christ. You cry out to him in those kinds of ways. Lord, help me. That's what he does here, isn't it? That's exactly what he does. You are my hiding place and my shield. Uphold me according to your promise. Hold me up, he says, that I may be safe. Uh, we, we, we sometimes say that the best of men is a man at best. And it's similarly, we can say that the strongest Christian is at his strongest entirely dependent on the Lord's preserving grace. You are going to be in, in, you are, you will be the strongest, dear Christian, the more that you, you are at your strongest when you are most aware of how weak and how needy you are. Do you see how that ought to change us? It means that we, on the one hand, when we see other people fall into sin, instead of saying, I can't believe that they did that, how could anybody do something like that? That we say, I have those same sins in my own heart, and but for God's grace, that's exactly where I would go. Lord, preserve me. Lord, keep me. Keep me in your way. And that's, what, that's what's going to keep us coming to the place of prayer. That's what's going to keep us coming to public worship. That's what's going to keep us in God's word. It's when we realize that we can't do this on our own. You can't make it a day in the Christian life. On your own. We must depend wholeheartedly on our God. Now this leads us third and finally into the last element of this war against indwelling sin. How do we wage war against indwelling sin? Third and finally now, we must remember constantly the coming judgment. We must remember constantly the coming judgment. You see, he does that in verses 118 through 120. He reminds himself 
of what the Lord does to those who turn aside from him. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your of your judgments. You know, so often in this present life, if we don't take the word of God into account, if we just look in this present life, we see that sin is so frequently glorified. It's presented as the good life. And so uh, there is uh, uh, music that glorifies a kind of hyper-sexualized life. Uh, There are Instagram feeds that encourage us to covet all the things that other people have, where people are glorying in their possessions or in their vacations and things like that. There are sports stars that are seeking glory from men. The good life is a life where you make lots of money and you have lots of fame. The life of sin is glorified. In our world. And it's even, it's glorified sometimes in very subtle ways. Even, you know, you and I will meet some often in our lives. We meet seemingly normal people who are very, very happy and who have no place for God in their lives. They don't go to church. They have no connection. They, they, they never go to worship. They don't read their Bibles. And yet they seem really normal and really happy. And it makes us think, look at that. You can have a normal, happy life without God. What is that? It's a glorifying of sin. The greatest sin of all is to ignore the worship of God. Right? And that's a glorifying of sin. And so wherever we turn in this life, sin is glorified. It's made to look attractive and good. It's rejoiced in. It's celebrated. And friends, when we are tempted to glorify sin, what we need to do is to remember the coming day of judgment. The day of judgment, as it were, puts everything into perspective. What will sin look like on that day? How does the psalmist describe it? You spurn. They will be trampled underfoot. All who go astray from the Lord's statutes. Their cunning is in vain. The wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Okay, dross, the a part of the, uh, as it were, the harvest that is just waste. Okay, I'm not a farmer, an agricultural person. Uh, you know, you think of it like this. The, the dinner plate, you've eaten all the good stuff off your plate and you're putting the scraps into the garbage. Okay, that's my language there. Okay, that's the idea discarding them like dross. That's what the Lord is going to do with those who are wicked, who have turned aside from it. You see how that changes our perspective on sin. Our world glorifies sin. It says that's the good life. This is what's good. What does the day of judgment say? Oh, all that is wicked and rebellious against the Lord is going to face His wrath and His judgment. And we need to be reminded of that on a day-to-day basis. That's what the psalmist is doing. He's putting the judgment day at the very, uh, the very forefront of his mind. He's re- remembering that the wages of sin is death. 
Romans 6.21. He's remembering that the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of uh, the righteous. Psalm 1.5. And so even as believers, we need to recall that thought of God's judgment. Do not fear those, Jesus said, who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's what he says. Remember the day of judgment. Even as a believer who is shielded in the Lord Jesus Christ from the coming judgment, we need to remember the reality of it because it makes sin far less attractive and it makes the Lord far more uh, glorious. And that's what he's doing here. And so in verse 120, it's because he's remembering the day of judgment. He says, my flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. And that's a good thing for the believer, to tremble a little bit before the awesomeness of our God, and to remember how glorious he is. Let the world scoff at God. We will tremble before his awesome might and majesty. Uh, the Puritan David Dixon says it, I think, really well. He says this, that the godly, because of the remainder of sin in them and their natural frailty, are not exempted from the sense of the terror of God. Yea, it is needful that they be now and then exercised therewith. Okay, that's a wordy saying of saying that you would sometimes experience, as it were, the terror of the Lord. Why? That so they may be kept in awe, their joy tempered with fear and trembling, their prayers sharpened, and they kept watchful, and thus their obedience further. That in other words, a kind of holy fear for the believer is part of the godly life. It encourages us to obedience because we see how dreadful sin is, the judgment it deserves, and we desire to walk in the way of the Lord's commands. And we become ever the more grateful for his saving mercy. Uh, the missionary Henry Martin once recorded of himself, and this is uh, William Plummer in his commentary includes this, that Henry Martin, the great uh, 18th century, 19th century missionary, uh, records this one time in his journal. He said, uh, In prayer, in the evening, I had such near and terrific views of God's judgments upon sinners in hell that my flesh trembled for fear of them. And I flew trembling to Jesus Christ as if the flame were taking hold of me. Oh, Christ will indeed save me, or else I perish. What a, what a thought, but what a godly expression. And that's exactly what the psalmist is saying. Dear friends, if we were, if you are to fight against indwelling sin, do those three things that we've seen, act severely toward your own sin. Depend wholeheartedly on your God. You can do nothing apart from him. But then lastly, remember constantly the judgments of God against sin. Uh, and might the Lord help us 
continue to do battle, that we would love his law and walk in the way of his commands. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for the psalmist's experience in Psalm 119, and we pray that we would have a kind of piety, a Christian devotion that's shaped by this psalm. Lord, make us those who love your law and who hate the double-minded. We pray this in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen.